The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. I am your guest host, Beth Greenland, and I'm a faculty member with Georgetown's Institute for Transformational Leadership. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Carolyn Coughlin, leadership coach, consultant, and a thought leader in designing and delivering developmentally-oriented leadership experiences. Carolyn is passionate about developing young women professionals to have more confidence and more presence as leaders. Carolyn previously served as a consultant at both McKinsey and Pricewaterhouse. She is a founding partner of Cultivating Leadership, an international consultancy that brings principles of adult development theory, managing complexity, and leadership presence together to support professionals at Google, the Wikimedia Foundation, KPMG, and other industry leaders. She also co-founded Growth Edge Coaching, a training program that immerses coaches and leaders in the theory and practice of adult development so that they can better support themselves and others to grow in their complexity of mind, body, and spirit. Carolyn, welcome to the show. I wonder if you might begin by telling us what got you interested in working with young professional women. Good morning, Beth. Thank you very much for that lovely welcome. Um, How did I get interested in supporting young women professionals? Um, I suppose that it's been percolating really all my life in some ways, only the way I've kind of noticed it has changed over the years. I grew up in a household with five brothers, all older than me, so I was the youngest girl in a very busy household. Um, I learned pretty early how to act like a boy. I always played competitive sports. I excelled in math and science. And, you know, I never really remember being particularly afraid um, to be seen as doing well in school or really any, like, I don't remember feeling threatened in any way uh, because I was a girl. Um, I guess in my mind, the only thing that would ever get in my way would be myself and that if I just worked really hard and did everything as well as I could, I would be, you know, I would be successful. And I really, really did not understand the kinds of things that my mother talked about and these vague things I heard about feminism. I you know, I thought, well, I, I really didn't understand what the big deal was. And I wrote in a blog a couple years ago, and my mother laughed about this when she read it, um, that I remember saying to my mother one day when I was about 15, I said, Mom, like, what's the big deal with this feminism thing? You know, like, why did you guys have to burn your bras and do all that kind of stuff? I don't see the big deal. <laughs> and she looked at me, and she said, 
honey, if we hadn't burned our bras, you wouldn't be asking that question right now. <laughs> and um, so I think like many women of my generation, which I sometimes call, I'm 50, and so I came of age in the 70s, and I think of um, my generation sometimes as kind of the Title IX generation. By the time I started going to college and doing this, even in high school, doing sports, there were no limits that I could really see. So I didn't really think that there was any big deal. What I didn't really see and what I think women of my generation often don't see or didn't see early on is the subtler challenges that we face. So um, I guess when this really all became uh, concrete for me, it really only happened about three years ago. I was running a leadership program for a client in Sydney, and the leadership program included some pre-work, which was a a 360 called the Leadership Circle. In one day, I was debriefing these two women, both about the same age, right around 40, and they were very, very different sorts of women. One had four children. The other one had never been married at all. Uh, But these two powerful coaching sessions that I had in that day really, really shifted my thinking. So... uh, one of them had been, but both of them essentially had to come face to face with these powerful protective personas that they had developed over the years, and they cultivated them throughout their lives in order to make it in a man's world. The one, the one with the, the children, was basically being told in her 360, mostly by men, because most of her respondents and peers were men, saying um, that she tried too hard and that she kind of acted like a puppy dog. The other one was told that she was cold and impenetrable. And um, I watched these women that day, and I thought, there's something wrong here. It's not just that we have to work harder and try harder. There's something wrong, and I really wanted to find out more about what it was. And so that's when I got interested, um, and something really shifted for me that day. Hmm. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. You know, and, you, and as you describe them, it sounds like each of these women has a different relationship with the idea of power. What's, what's daunting about power for women, do you think? <laughs> I think everything is daunting about power for women. Um, I, so there's a, some concepts that I, about power that I've been using in, um, in some of my writing and I've been using a couple of terms that I borrowed from a woman named Gloria Phelps. She was the past executive director of Planned Parenthood, and she's the founder of TakeTheLead.org. And she used these, these two terms called power over versus power to, and I find them really, really helpful. Um, so power is just a word, right? Power is a word, and it's pretty much spelled the same way for everybody, at least in English, um, and it's... Um, it sounds the same to everybody, except the way that each person makes sense of the idea of power is really different. And that's true with all words, really, but especially loaded words like power. And I find that women really make sense of the idea of power pretty systematically differently than the way men do. Um, Florence Kennedy once famously said, women aren't afraid of power, they're afraid of oppression. And... I think there's a corollary to that, which is that women are not only afraid of oppression, of being oppressed, they're afraid of being seen as the oppressor or being the oppressor. So um, why is that? I mean, women are really, we are, the science shows us we're wired for connection, much more so as a general rule than men are. So, and we're socialized for connection too. So 
if power means um, some sort of a differential or some sort of implied oppression, then women are going to be a little bit afraid of that. Now, anything I say about women here, I don't mean this is true for all women. I'm just talking generally, the ones that I've worked with. So um, power to... Uh, sorry, power over tends to imply for a lot of women some sort of oppression or power differential. Um, so it tends to be a little bit unappetizing for a lot of women that I know. Um, <laughs> I define power too, on the other hand, is uh, it's kind of an inner resource. It's not something that's like bestowed upon us. It's not um, given to us by virtue of our position or our expertise, or our physical prowess, or even our social status. Power, too, is hard to define because it's hard to see, except like good art, we kind of know it when we see it, right? We, we see that person who is um, willing to stand up and take a stand, even at some risk to them, uh, even at some risk to, uh, to um, their relationships, perhaps, or their status. And um, sometimes it's even more subtler than that, though, Beth. It's sometimes it's, it's simply that quality that a person has of grounded and centeredness in the face of what looks like chaos. And um, so that's, that power, too, I think, is um, the thing that we ought to be emphasizing more than power over. It's essentially redefining power for women, I think, is so critical. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking power to, it sounds like it's power to make change, power to give feedback, power to step into a difficult situation. It sounds like it's power to action rather than power over people. So there's something more, I don't know, bigger than the individual relationships. It's, it's, it's making a change in the world. Does that sound right at all to you, Carolyn? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, yeah. Power, too, does imply action. Um, in fact, two of my other favorite authors in this space, uh, Kitty Kay and Claire Shipman, wrote a book called The Confidence Code and a pretty well-known article called The Confidence Gap in the Atlantic Monthly a couple of years ago. And they define um, confidence as the stuff that turns thoughts into action. So... Mm-hmm. I really like that because power, too, is really about being able to take what we care about. Well, first of all, it's being able to see and recognize what we really care about and turn that into action in some way. And so I suppose that if women are doing, anybody is doing that in service of making the world a better place, then, yeah, making the world a better place. You know, I'm glad you raised this idea of confidence and the book, The Confidence Code. Um, It sounds like as you were describing your early years, Carolyn, you didn't have much of a problem with confidence. It sounds like you really um, (laughs) developed a strong sense of yourself. And I'm curious, you know, um, here we are. um, You said you're 50, so let's say 40, 30, 40 years later, and still women seem to be struggling with this idea of confidence. Why is that, do you think? Why do so many young women struggle with this idea of confidence. And how uh, can coaching, by the way, as a coach, I know you work with a lot of young women struggling with this. How can coaching support that? Well, the why part of, of why do young and older women struggle with confidence so much, that's really 
and that's the $50 million question, Beth. <laughs> if we knew the answer to that, I think that we probably have solved it or at least made more progress on it than, than we have. There is, though, overwhelming evidence that women... It, it, I mean, we've all kind of heard some of these ideas that women, um, they don't ask for as much money when they're negotiating for salary. They tend to go for positions only when they're 100% sure that they're ready for them, whereas men, and there are lots of studies that show this, men only need to be about 60% confident <laughs> that they are, or think that they're 60% ready for a role before they'll go for it, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a big, important question because the, a lot of the research also shows that how, one, how confident one feels about one's abilities really leads to um, whether they take particular actions or not. So, yeah, it's a big deal. Um, what do we do about it? <laughs> I, I think coaching is really, really helpful. Women come to me normally. Now I'm talking about the women. I coach a lot of different kinds of people, but the people in this kind of 28 to 35 age range who are women, they almost always come to me because someone has said someone more senior to them has said, you've got a problem. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. the problem tends to come in one of two flavors, at least in my experience. The first one is you are great, you're smart, but you need to show up in a more leader-like way. You're too transactional. Some of my clients call it gravitas. They're lacking gravitas. But I learned that that's pretty much code for you're not acting like a leader. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. the other one is, people find you to be too tough and too hard to work with. So just imagine that. These women, and most of the ones I work with, have great pedigrees. They grew up sort of like I did, having tons of confidence, thinking they can do anything. And up to a particular age, all the evidence, everything coming back at them from the outside world suggested that they could. They got into the best schools, they might have been great athletes, they got their a great job at some really competitive firm out of university. All the evidence showed them that what they were doing was working. And now suddenly, here they are, and they're being told, actually, all that stuff that you did really well and that got you here, not only is it not working, it's actually a liability. So that's why my clients usually come to me, at least the young women. And what does that have to do with confidence? They, I don't think they really know that it's a confidence issue, but that's not, that's not the presenting problem. But what I see when, I begin, when we begin together to dig deep is that they are looking outside themselves for evidence that they are okay, and they're not getting it. So suddenly what used to be confidence is no longer feels like confidence. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm, I'm intrigued by your last point, that they're looking for evidence from others that they're doing the right thing. And so um, this connects to this concept that you have about a self-authored perspective that's different from this um, seeking affirmation from outside. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so you said in the beginning, Beth, that I um, teach a lot about adult development. And, um, and so 
self-authored is a concept that shows up in adult development theory. So listeners who are familiar with particularly Bob Keegan's theory of adult development will be familiar with that term from a developmental perspective. For the lay person, self-authored really means, like if it's someone who makes sense of the world through a self-authored meaning-making system, it literally means that at some point along the way, you have picked up the pen and started to write the story of your own life. And not only did you write it once, you're continuing to write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. So you are the author of your own story. Now, um, people, I guess that begs the question, what comes before the self-authored meaning-making system? And um, I think that that's really the critical transition that, that I work with people in quite a lot, at least these young women, the transition from the previous meaning-making stage, which is called, which Keegan and others call the socialized meaning-making system. And that's the meaning-making system that, again, the research shows and my personal experience shows as well. The majority of adults actually make meaning in a socialized way, which means that they tend to look outside themselves to, for evidence of how they're doing. So they construct their sense of the world and the sense of themselves through the lens of external people or institutions or ideas. And so they're, so they're constantly looking outside themselves to know how they're doing. And the self-authored, in contrast, is when, um, as my friend and colleague Jennifer Garvey Berger described, you become sort of the, the chair of your own board of directors. So you have multiple perspectives at your disposal, but you integrate them into your own uh, sense of the world, that it makes it a lot easier to navigate com many competing demands. You know, that sounds really important as for women to develop their own sense of self-authorship rather than seeking that affirmation from others, especially if they're not getting it. <laughs> so we're going to go into break in just a, a few seconds, Carol, and I wonder if after we come back from the break you can share more about how you support women to move into this more self-authored space. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. 
Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back. I'm Beth Greenland, your guest host, and we're talking with Carolyn Coughlin about supporting leaders, particularly young women leaders, in developing more confidence and more presence. And before the break, Carolyn was telling us, you were telling us, Carolyn, about um, the opportunity for women to be in a more of a self-authoring perspective. Um, in other words, creating their own sense of confidence and competence and relying on their own meaning-making rather than relying on others to tell them about um, perhaps how, how competent they are. So how, say more about how you actually do that as a coach. Well, okay, so there are many different ways. And I, I, look, there are many ways to help a a young woman comes for coaching. She's been told you need to act more leader-like. There are any number of things you can, one can do to support a person in that situation. It could be, um, it could be that she needs to practice standing up in front of groups and communicating with a fuller voice or taking questions better or listening to the views of others better or being more you know, assertive about her point of view. It could be any number of things, ways in which you could support a woman or anybody to improve her skills that would, could lead to her looking and acting more like a leader. Um, but this idea of supporting someone to become more self-authored is, it, it's trickier, but it's actually the kind of work I like to do. It's, um, I, I refer to that under the umbrella of developmental coaching. So it's not about helping a person to be able to do new things, although it often does include that. It's really about helping people to see the ways that they are showing up in the world and to look at the underlying assumptions and beliefs that give rise to those ways of being and then holding the space for another person to be able to not only see but question those a little bit. So there's this, this part of coaches supporting women to become more self-authored that is really about helping them to see with new eyes. And the coach can be really helpful in that way because it's, when, you're, when you're just going along about your daily life, it's very, very hard, especially um, I think in the early stages of development, to spontaneously step back and be able to see what you're doing and question it and notice it um, and all those things. So coach can be really helpful. So I usually spend a fair amount of time with my coaching clients 
just having them tell me stories. I listen to their language, and I notice the, the ways that they talk about themselves, the ways that they talk about their context, about the demands on them, and I, um, I reflect back to them uh, what I hear them saying. And I try to get underneath the story to try to understand mm-hmm. what's driving the, the way they tell their stories. So what's most important to them? What are the hardest things about certain situations for them? And so it's like kind of mining for the meaning underneath the story of their lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, and I'm thinking about a particular client that I worked with who, you know, she talked about how she was um, always told she had to play nice, play nice, and then she gets into the workforce and, you know, play nice doesn't work anymore. And then she, she says, so she says, oh, what am I supposed to do, play mean? So, so it seems like there, there can be this idea even in people's language. And I think about what you said about language. And so she was stuck because play nice didn't work, but play mean doesn't work either. <laughs> that's a great example, Beth. Um, and that's, so you were listening in her language for the way that she was making sense of, of these ideas and the way that she was able to make sense of them, which, as you described, there's play nice and there's play mean. Those are my two choices. So in a world where you only have those two choices, you're pretty limited. So this client, for example, um, if she thinks that... Um, that playing mean is, is not going to be congruent with the way she wants to be in the world, then she has no choice but to play nice. Mm-hmm. But from a, so what I would do with that, one of the things I might do with that person is say, so it looks to me like you're seeing only two choices. Is that right? You're seeing this play nice or play mean. And so from that, if that's the way you're seeing it, what questions are you asking yourself about what to do, and I don't know what she would say, but she might say something like, well, I'm asking myself, how can I not play nice because I can't play mean? That's not me. So we might together come up with a new question that she might ask herself, like the simple one that you asked, what would be another alternative to playing nice that isn't playing mean, or what would be an alternative that you could actually live with? Um, so it's beginning to support that person to redefine their most basic assumptions about what's possible and what's not possible. Uh, so, and, and that is, it, it, it can, seems like a really minor thing, but when you, if you can get a person to see just a little bit differently uh, by asking different questions and thinking about a concept that had previously seemed fixed to them in a different way, you can open up so many possibilities for that person. Mm, wow. That's, yeah. That's, and that seems um, so incredibly freeing um, to people to have so many more options opened yeah. up for them. So just asking different questions. You know, as you're talking, Carolyn, I'm thinking about um, so much is, is written now, right, about um, women and confidence, and I'm thinking about Sheryl Sandberg's book, lean in, and um, I've had different, you know, people I've talked to have had different reactions to it. Some have said um, she's really helping young women. Others have said, you know, that she's just giving me an impossibly high bar. So what's your take on that? <laughs> um, 
I am just going to be totally transparent and say I really loved Cheryl's book. I read it, I don't know, shortly after it came out. And I think it was just after I had had this kind of um, massively shifting moment for myself with these two women I described at the beginning. But I know her ideas are controversial, and I have a sense of why they might be. Um, she, she's pretty clear that we women need to do things differently if we want to shift the, the power balance. And, you know, just to take a, a couple of examples, she says we need to take a seat at the table. What else did she say? We need to speak our truth. We need to not be afraid. We need to choose mentors and partners who will help us be big rather than small. And I think the number one thing she says, or at least the thing that sticks most in my mind, is not to quit before the miracle happens. And here she's talking about women who lean out, you know, when they even, when they get to the age of whatever it is and they're starting to even think about maybe having a family, they suddenly decide that they don't, that they won't go for big opportunities anymore. And um, so depending on how you make sense, again, (laughs) it all comes back to sense-making for me, if you haven't noticed. Um, Mm -hmm. Depending on how you make sense of her ideas, let's say you're in that stage of development where you look to outside sources of knowing in order to know who you are and what to do and how to make decisions. It would be quite possible then to read Cheryl's uh, ideas as instructions. You must do this. You know, women, it's your fault. You need to fix it. These are the things you must do. So if you happen to agree with Cheryl and then you go out and do some of these things, try to make some changes, it's possible that, you know, things will get a little bit better. But if you're one of those people who doesn't agree or doesn't like to be told what to do by somebody that you don't agree with, then you could think Cheryl's ideas are not that helpful. So uh, I get why people find them a little bit... um, hard to swallow and maybe even impossibly high standards. But let's just take, do you mind, Beth, if we were to just take one of her kind of ideas as an example and see, is it really impossibly high? Great. Okay. So, um, so let's just take the take a seat at the table idea, right? Mm-hmm. Is that seem impossible? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends why you are not currently taking, one is not currently taking a seat at the table, it is true, I think, it's certainly in my experience, that women sit on the periphery e- either literally mm-hmm. or figuratively more than men do. Um, why do they do that? Who knows? It could be any one of many things. You know, we don't want to be rude. We don't want to act too big for our britches. We're hesitant to take on a role that we're not sure we're ready for. Maybe we think if we take a seat at the table that our um, lives will become overwhelming because it'll be too much responsibility or something like that. Um, so it, 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 whether it seems like an impossible hurdle, I think, depends on a little bit on how you make sense of it. So um, if you have, again, a self-authoring capacity and you can decide, both see the reasons why you might be hesitant and um, look at those and have someone to support you maybe um, in questioning the assumptions that make it, uh, that have led you to not be sitting at the table so far, then that doesn't really seem like an impossible hurdle. On the other hand, if someone is saying, just sit at the table, but you've got all these underlying assumptions that you can't see that are keeping you from doing that, then it probably is an impossible hurdle. 
You know, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking about the, the excuse of, oh, someone else deserves it more than I do, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. their role is more, right? So, so I'm hearing you say something that's, that sounds really important, which is just saying to someone, fix it or do something different isn't near as helpful in many cases as really getting underneath. What are you think? What's your thinking? How are you understanding the world? What sense are, in your language, what sense are you making that's causing you to do the thing that you're doing and to kind of look at that and explore it and challenge it and bring it to the light of day so that the, the person that you're working with, the young, the young person can say, yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense or I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And then have the support to, um, to be able to do something differently once you have a sense of what is it that's getting in your way right now. And while there are, I, I, believe me, I, um, it's my experience that there are many, many subtle hurdles for women that don't exist to the same degree for men in terms of getting into leadership roles. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, and I think this is what Cheryl is saying, that a lot of the hurdles are internal. They are in the kind of they, they reside in the system of ourselves, not out, not just outside ourselves. It's both. Uh, and so, if we can, uh, again, and coaches are really helpful for this. That if we can see our internal system that is telling us. You can't do that because you won't be liked, or you can't do that because nice women don't do that, or you can't do that because it's impossible to have a powerful position and also have a happy family life. There really is very little chance that any individual, and we as women collectively, will be able to do the sorts of things. That's why it's hard to act like men because our inner systems are different. Mm. Mm. You know, and I know that you do a lot of work in the complexity domain, and I'm, I'm imagining then as the world gets more and more complex, even more challenging for women to um, build this, this self-authored sense of themselves. So say something about how this, complexity and self-authoring connect with each other? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I'm going to tell a kind of a, a fictional story <laughs> here just because I, I think it's a help to, or it might be a help for people to sort of get a felt sense of how the complexity of our lives grows over the course of time and therefore how uh, a meaning-making system that's designed for a world where there are knowable outcomes and where there are um, sort of somebody telling us what to do and there's clear direction, how that system doesn't really work very well as we get older or our lives become more complex. So um, I have three teenagers, so... A lot of my stories have to do with teenagers. That's, <laughs> that's my life at the moment. Um, so, so if you can remember maybe back to when you were a teenager, um, then you might remember being torn in particular ways. So it, it might be that you had um, a friend, one friend who wanted to do one thing and one friend who wanted to do another thing. 
and this happened to me all the time when I was a teenager, and you find yourself, or I found myself, thinking, oh, what do I do? You know, Susie wants to do one thing, Jane wants to do another thing, and if I were really on my game, I might notice that there was something I actually wanted to do, too. <laughs> I had this question of, well, so what do I do? Do I do what Susie wants to do? Do I do what Jane wants to do? Or maybe, do I do what I want to do? So that's kind of what life is like when you're a teenager. Now, I know I'm oversimplifying, but fast forward now to when you're maybe 29, something like that, um, and again, I'm through my own memory right now, but you're 29, you have a career, you're doing really well, maybe you're in a committed relationship or maybe you're thinking about getting into one, maybe you're even thinking about having a family um, at this point in your career, maybe you have people reporting to you, maybe you have multiple bosses, you're in one of those organizations where there are not clear reporting lines, you have clients. Maybe you are starting to actually get your own, um, have more interests in your life. You have hobbies or maybe you care about doing something that really matters in the world. So now your life's a bit more complex, right? It's not just you and Susie anymore and Jane. Mm -hmm. Now you have all these things going on. And if you can just remember what that's like, or maybe that's you today, uh, suddenly your own world is much more complex than it was. So every day you're, you're, you have the potential to be torn in many different directions. Now, if you are making sense, again, through all these external people, you're going to just be torn all the time. And, but if you have an internal voice that says, yeah, I can take into account all these different perspectives um, and, and here's what I think is the thing to do, there's just a lot less tearing. So, um, so that's, there's more to it, but that's a lot what the complexity has to do with self-authorship. Great. That's, that's very interesting. So that's that internal board of directors that you were mentioning earlier, yeah. having an internal sense of what to do next. Great. Well, we're going to be going into a break, um, and when we come back, we'd love to hear more about this concept of complexity and also for you to share with us what's next for you on the horizon. I know you're doing some writing, so looking forward to hearing about that. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu 
forward slash ITL. Email ITL programs at georgetown.edu or call 202 687 7000. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back to Inside Transformational Leadership. We're talking today with leadership coach and thought leader, Carolyn Coughlin. Carolyn, before the break, you were talking about this idea of complexity, and I know that's something you're interested in. So tell us what you're, what's next on the horizon for you in this complexity work and other work that you're doing. <laughs> um, I'm doing a lot of different things, Beth. My colleagues at uh, Cultivating Leadership lovingly call me the VP of multiple possibilities. So <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> Um, there's a lot that I'm working on, and let me just start with, so, so I do lots of work supporting individual clients, and in particular women, to develop a self-authoring meaning-making system or beyond, so that's one thing we've mm-hmm. talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Another thing, I guess two other things, with regard to complexity, the, the thing that my firm, Cultivating Leadership, is most known for is the work that we do supporting leaders in complexity. And that is not, um, that's not just women, that's, that's everyone who's leading in complexity, which turns out to be almost everyone. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and so what we do is we, first, we introduce the idea of complexity generally, so in how it's different from from the predictable world, and that is that's a really a big shift for people, and um, to, to to realize that so much of the world that we were really have been trained and conditioned to think that we could control that we can't actually control, and not only can we not control it, but it's moving so quickly, and there are so many interconnected parts that are changing all the time that we can't really even we can't really even predict what's going to happen next. So we introduce that idea to leaders, and often they think, well, that's not, that's not the world I live in. I have targets, and I can meet them. Um, but often they're fascinated. And so, so there are many things I could talk about about complexity, but the thing that's most relevant to this particular topic that we've been talking about is it really, in a way, goes, well, in a big way, it goes back to confidence. So mm-hmm. one of the things that's hardest for leaders when they uh, kind of awaken to the fact that their worlds are more complex than they had thought they were is that, that this, they have to be able to um, 
I guess one of the core things they have to be able to do as leaders is to tolerate not knowing and depending on how you make sense of the world, tolerating not knowing can be really, really hard and it can be very, very challenging to a person's confidence. So when faced with complexity, trying to predict and know can feel like, you feel, it can feel comforting, but it can also feel like failure when you get it wrong, which is going to be practically all the time. <laughs> so, so, and I think that's really relevant to, um, to developing leaders of all, of all sorts. Um, another thing that I've been working on is uh, a couple of uh, programs um, that are in the works for young women leaders that would span over the course of a year. And those um, will be run in this country and in the Middle East with a colleague of mine. And we're just trying out what would it be like if you were to get women at a pretty young age and teach them about adult development, support their own growth developmentally, and introduce them to the ideas of complexity so that they, from the very start um, of their careers, would be kind of growing up in a world where they knew about growth and development, they were supported to grow and develop, and they were prepared for the sort of world they were entering. Mm-hmm. So that's another wow. thing. Well, it sounds great. You know, what, a, what an amazing offer to have that kind of support. <laughs> you know, and I know that you're also interested in um, language and word choices, and it seems like <laughs> the whole idea of language-based development is really important here because we need to see if we're trying to understand the world differently, the way we use language and words seems to be a really important piece in that. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're, for those of you who are familiar with adult development theory, at least the main, the main ones, are, they're all language-based. So uh, what, what we, those of us who are paying attention to other people's development through one of these measures, like the subject-object interview or the math or any of the sentence completion test-based measures, we're paying attention to the language people use and using that as a proxy for understanding how they're making sense of the world. Now, I am, I should say, because I haven't said it so far, that I believe, I have a strong belief that language is just one way in and that Mm. our language and um, our sensations and our emotion, those all come from the same place. (laughs) They come from our nervous system, from our kind of inner system. Um, But in terms of language, uh, yeah, so up till now I've been teaching about adult development and um, helping coaches and leaders to be better at understanding their own and others' development so they could support them better. And it's required a kind of a deep knowing and understanding of adult development theory through our Growth Edge coaching program. The thing that I've been playing with recently, um, particularly with my colleague, one of my colleagues, Doug Sophie, we recently developed a model that we're calling language bell jars. Um, and it's Basically, we're defining those as recurring patterns of language that hint at a structure of interpretation or meaning-making. So we've taken what both of us know from our many years of coaching, and we've identified particular patterns in language, such as relationship to responsibility, 
identity-forming language, uh, how we manage dilemmas, things like that, um, to, so that... Um, so that coaches and leaders can listen for those particular language patterns in themselves and others as both a way into understanding how they're making sense of the world and also to intervene in some way. So to, to notice the patterns and then shift those patterns when it makes sense and when those are supportive of a person's growth and development. So what would be an example of that, Carolyn? Well, um, let's see. Uh, so of the, we've identified nine patterns in language. There's no magic to that, but those are the ones we came up with. Um, one of those patterns we call assumed constraints. So, um, so this is where if you listen to someone talk in their language, you can, you can begin, to, if you listen carefully, you can begin to get a sense for what they are assuming about the constraints that exist on them, on their world, and on their particular situation. So... I had a client recently who, um, this was a young woman, professional, and every time I asked her what would be the worst thing about not doing the thing that her boss had just asked her to do, even though she was exhausted, her answer was always some version of, that's not an option. I was told after my last project that I was seen as not collaborative, so therefore I can't make anyone mad. (laughs) That's what she would say. So mm-hmm. after many weeks, you can imagine how limiting that might be. So yeah. after many weeks of reflecting back to her what I was hearing as an assumed constraint, she then began to catch herself doing it and eventually um, began to ask herself the question, what would be the worst thing about not doing what my boss just asked me to do? And um, so this, um, I mean, this one particular, they, they all do in some way go, go back to confidence because um, as you can imagine, this, this woman's, uh, options were quite limited because she had this assumed constraint on what she could and couldn't do. And so, you know, con- confidence is what I sometimes call an emergent property. Like, you can't bestow it on anybody. You can't, you know, wish it into being or will it into being. But confidence emerges from a sense of possibilities and a sense of agency that comes from feeling like you have choice. Mm-hmm. So, um through this pattern in language, we were able to actually increase her confidence significantly around making choices that might not be popular with, with everybody else, but that were going to make her a better leader and also a happier person. So there's mm-hmm. an example. That's great. You know, it sounds like just having the idea of a pattern, so yeah. leaders, we can listen to our own patterns, oh, there I go again assuming this constraint. There I go again, assuming I have to have other people like me. There I go again. So having the patterns kind of named and called out, whether we're leaders or coaches, it sounds like it can be really, really helpful. So we're hearing what's recurring and can can kind of interrupt that pattern. Is that is that right? Yeah, and that's exactly right. It's It's not just, well, yes, it's interrupting it by first noticing it and then saying, so with that pattern of language, what's possible for you and what's not so possible for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the thing that I've been amazed by, Beth, is that when, um, you know, I've been doing this sort of coaching for so long, I have been implicitly listening for, for these sorts of patterns around responsibility, around assumed constraints, around identity-forming language, um, but it wasn't until recently that we put these 
that I sort of put these down on paper. And if, in working with other coaches, I've, we've, uh, Doug and I have run a workshop where we're using this stuff. And in working with other coaches, I was amazed at how, um, how we don't know, in the course of a regular conversation, even really, really experienced coaches don't notice these patterns. So it's just a question of tuning our ears to them. They're so powerful. Yeah, so powerful to notice the notice the patterns and be able to break, or as you say, notice them first and then be able to make a choice, which sounds like it's really core to everything we're saying, right? Having more choice, being more in agency, being more self-authoring, going back to what we started with. That, yeah. all, that all can make such a huge difference in the lives of uh, young women professionals, and I'm guessing in all of us as professionals. Yeah, yeah. And um, just one more kind of big idea, if I, if yeah. I could. I'll make it quick. Um, so we've been talking a lot about supporting young women to be more self-authored. Um, and I see this, so speaking of complexity, I think, I've come to think of the uh, the question of women in leadership and gender parity or whatever people are calling it as an incredibly complex issue. It's intractable. It is, a, if it were anything other than intractable, we would have seen, I think, a lot more progress than we have. And because it's complex, there is never going to be just one answer. It's going to be a series of uh, little nudges to what I think of as the system that is stuck, and at many different levels, we're going to need to experiment. So I see this idea of supporting women in self-authorship to develop a self-authored voice as one of many little experiments, but I think a really important one that could have a lot, a lot of promise, and I don't know how to do it on, well, have ideas, but, you know, so far I'm doing it on very small scales, um, but we'll see if there are ways to, um, to to do it on a larger scale. I think it can make a really huge difference. Hmm. That's an intriguing idea. You think about <laughs> a larger scale kind of as, as, as young women are developed, as you mentioned, in, throughout their lives, really starting very, very early. Is that what you're thinking, Carolyn, kind of a, an educational approach in universities or yeah. something different than that? Yeah, even younger. Um, even younger. The, the thing is, it's not that it's not that women grow into self-authorship any later than men do. It's just that what men are socialized into is leadership are the things that get them into leadership roles. So, so yeah, I have hope. <laughs> Great. Well, and I do too. And I think um, it's it's really fascinating work. Um, and thank you so much, Carolyn, for sharing this with us. It's been great to have you on the show and best wishes for all that's ahead for you. And thank you all for listening. This is Inside Transformational Leadership, sponsored by Georgetown's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We'll be back next week with another great conversation about leading in the 21st century. I hope you have a great week. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu 
forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.